Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Olivier Bachem. Olivier is a research scientist at Google Brain. Olivier, welcome to This Week at Machine Learning and AI. Hi, Sam. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm excited to learn more about the uh, environment that you worked on. It's called uh, Google Research Football. Uh, we'll dive into that. But before we do, I'd love to explore your background a little bit. You did your PhD in large-scale clustering problems. Tell us a little bit about that, how you got to uh, that, and what you've been working on more recently. Yes, so um, as you said, I did my PhD at ETH Zurich uh, on large-scale clustering. So one thing, kind of the, the, the main question that I consider in my PhD is, how can we go and apply clustering methods such as k-means clustering to very large data sets? And I essentially worked on two major topics. One was called, or is called core sets, where the idea is you have a very large data set, but you want to run your um, machine learning or your clustering algorithm, not on a full data set, but on a smaller set, because you it might just take too long if you have billions of data points. And now core sets, they're a subset of your original data that you can find very efficiently but that when you train on this smaller subset, you get solutions that are provably competitive as if you would have trained on the full data set. So that was one topic. And the, the second one um, was related to k-means clustering as well, um, where uh, many people use an algorithm called k-means++, which is a smart way to initialize a clustering algorithm. And we worked on um, ways to make it much faster by, again, only looking at parts of the data or maybe looking at it once or twice instead of multiple times. Oh, cool. And when you talk about the core sets and having provably competitive results, is that an exercise in structuring your sample subset so that it has similar statistical properties as the larger data set? Um, it is to some point. It is also about finding the data points that are very important. Turns out in many machine learning problems, but in particular in, in clustering, you can have billions of data points, but um, some data points, maybe in regions where you have very few, um, very, very not, not a lot of data, and now you want to capture this data because they can be, it can contribute a large part to the error of your model, whereas in regions of the space where you have a lot of data, you want to take several data points and kind of group them together. So I would say uh, that's the intuition behind the approach, but then you have to kind of do this properly um, in order to actually get theoretical guarantees. Okay. It sounds like in that regard, it's somewhat related to active learning. Well, yes and no. I think the the yes part is it's about finding important points. Here, the key idea is um, you want to do this. Uh, I mean, here we're doing this essentially in an unsupervised setting, right? If you're doing clustering, you don't get labels, but it's more about actually which data do you want to look at um, more closely. So, right, yes, right. So and I meant conceptually as opposed to in practice. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so, so that was your PhD. What sparked your interest in doing a PhD in machine learning uh, at all? Yeah. So, I have a bit of a non traditional background. I did my undergrads in economics, I worked in different companies, I did a master's in quant finance, um, worked in some startups, did a statistics master and yeah during my my master's in statistics i ran across these cool algorithms where you could solve uh, statistical problems in a very applied way 
And I thought this was pretty cool. And immediately after my master's, I thought it would be cool to do a PhD in, in Explorer. All right, cool. And uh, what are some of the things that you've been working on at Google Brain? Yeah, so um, at Google Brain, I've done quite a lot of different projects, which I thought was really cool, but I would broadly group them into three different categories. So uh, in the last year, I've mainly led a um, big effort on um, research into learning what's called disentangled representations. Tell us a little bit more about that. What are disentangled representations? Yeah, so the key idea is that in many um, settings in machine learning, you see a lot of high-dimensional observations, such as images or video or audio, but that these um, observations are not truly high-dimensional, but that they are the result of a lower-dimensional set of ground truth factors of variation. And now, when you do representation learning, you essentially want to capture or learn a function that takes such a high-dimensional observation and captures um, some form of information about that observation. And disentanglement or dis uh, disentangled representations is one property that you might want to get when you're doing representation learning, which is you want to capture these different factors um, of variation in your actual representation. So one example would be if you have an image with an object in the middle, right, or or somewhere on on, on, the, on the image, you could say, for example, one of the facts of variation might be there is an object um, at some position, with some size, with some color, and you want to capture each of these properties independently in representation. And can you give us a sense of, within the realm of disentangled representations, what's kind of the state of the art? What are the key tests and research? Yeah, that's actually a pretty cool question. Because um, this is essentially the question I asked myself about a year ago when I started working on this topic. There was a lot of papers and on this on this topic doing um, new methods, and new metrics, and we started a project actually benchmarking all of these methods. It's called. Uh, it resulted in a paper called "Challenging Common Assumptions in the Unsupervised Learning of Disentangled Representations." What we actually found is that um, when you actually train a lot of these models, and we did a large-scale study, we trained more than 10,000 such um, disentanglement models, we found that um, a lot of things happen that are quite surprising. Um, now, the approach that we took um, is kind of, we, we thought of it, okay, what's the approach um, if we are a new researcher, we get a new data set, we want to find a disentangled representation, what are the questions we actually have to answer? And as you mentioned, I guess the first question you want to answer is, which model should I use, right? What is the state-of-the-art model? Maybe a second question is, um, how would you select model parameters, uh, um, hyperparameters to actually train your model? And thirdly, you might not just train one model, but many different models, and you might have to select the model um, that you actually want to use. And what we kind of found is actually very interesting that the model that you use is not that important. It seems that all the methods that were proposed, and when you do a large-scale evaluation on many data set uh, with many metrics to measure disentanglement, you kind of uh, find out that um, all of them can give you very good disent um, uh, disentanglement representations um, at the same time. So yeah, having said that, um, like if you, um, what we also found is it's, it's very hard to um, select hyperparameters um, because one of the hard parts in, in learning this entangled representations is that when you train these models and you evaluate them, you know what the ground truth factors of variations are. But many of these methods that you actually want to use, the whole assumption, the whole point of using them is that you don't know the ground truth factors of variation. 
So when you do the training, you have to be kind of strict. You're not allowed to look at the labels because that would be kind of uh, cheating in a sense, because in the settings where you actually want to use such a model, you don't have access to these labels. So one of the hard parts is it's very hard to select good hyperparameters because you cannot compute the disentanglement scores when you afterwards want to use it. It turns out uh, models are quite sensitive to hyperparameters, which may not be may not be surprising. Now, there is some hope that you can transfer hyperparameters across different data sets, but that brings me kind of to the last point, right? How do you actually select um, a model when you've trained many models with the same hyperparameters? What turns out there is even for a given model and a given set of hyperparameters, you can get vastly different results. You can, if you train a hundred models, you're going to get some that are very uh, well disentangled, you have some that are completely entangled. And the hard part is without looking at the labels or without looking at the models yourself as a human, um, it's very hard to say which of these models you should be using. We looked at different strategies on how to do this. And maybe to um, illustrate with a kind of a comparison with the, with the best thing um, that we could find is even if you kind of do a smart strategy of finding um, good hyperparameters, um, you're going to beat a random model across all the models I've trained only um, uh, slightly more than at a coin flip, so slightly more at 50, than 50%, something mm-hmm. like 60%. Well, when I hear you describe that work, I hear a couple of different things. One, I hear this like core focus on the disentanglement versus entanglement, which I'm kind of conceptualizing as like an orthogonality of these different, uh, I don't know what, you, what you'd even call them, not models, but... Spaces, representations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Thank you. I also am in the example you gave where you've got an image and the disentangled representations are, you know, an object and color and size and things like that. It almost starts to sound like, you know, a holy grail of uh, AI or AGI where you're like, there's true intelligence there. And the question that, that comes to mind is, you know, to what degree are these disentangled representations generally that explainable or aligned with our intuition and how we as humans would interpret what's happening in an image? Or are they just some orthogonal-ish set of representations that don't necessarily map to the way w- that we would interpret an image? So I think there, there's maybe two points. So the first point, this is also one that we make in a paper, is that if you look at the task, because it's an unsupervised learning task, it is actually indefined and we have an impossibility results, which kind of shows that no algorithm can do, uh, I mean, this is my interpretation, no algorithm or kind of to learn this entire representations can do so consistently for all possible world models of the world or all possible processes that generated your data. And mm. I think that brings us kind of to the second point, right? This might, essentially means that um, you require um, inductive biases um, onto um, kind of the models which match the data that you want to use the models for, right? And I guess one of the hopes um, or the, the key idea why a lot of people are excited about um, this entanglement representations is that there are such good inductive biases, right? And if you were to find a disentangled representations, and this is kind of follow-up work that we have looked into, it seems that you get... Um, quite some benefits in terms of the representations you get. Um, we, we found that for non-trivial downstream tasks, when you look at tasks that require reasoning, right, abstract reasoning about 
about the world that you will do better if your representation is um, disentangled versus if you looked at, uh, or at least we saw that this was correlated with um, your um, representation being entangled. I think that's kind of the hope that suddenly your algorithms that you or your models that you train, they will generalize better to stuff that you have not seen before uh, and things like this. And I think that's why a lot of people are excited about this. But I completely agree. It, it matters how you define what is interpretable or not, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Well, for, for the sake of time, we'll skip uh, some of the work you've done on generative models. That's the other thing that you spent a bunch of time on uh, at Brain and dive into the research that was recently published on uh, Google Research Football. Tell us a, a little bit about uh, that project and its motivation and how it came about. Uh, sure, sure. Um, so basically, um, I think the whole project started in late summer last year. And it basically started as a kind of cool idea in our team where we had, I mean, one thing you have to see about um, Google Brain, at least um, uh, in Zurich, where, where I've been, it's very collaborative. We share a lot of ideas uh, over uh, informal sessions, like when we go for lunch, when we go for coffee, but also in, in kind of within a team. And I remember um, we, we had this idea that we could use reinforcement learning um, to play uh, video or kind of video games that model soccer, right? Um, I guess every, a lot of people have played in their youth um, such such video games. And we, we started discussing about this, you know, what are the pros, what are the cons? And out of this, uh, we started um, kind of just gained a bit of traction within the team. And we started, uh, we started investigating, would this be possible? Would it be feasible? And we came across this uh, open source uh, football game called Gameplay Football, um, and we thought, okay, let's see what we can do with this. And um, at the same time, we, as we wanted to do, or and some people in our group uh, were doing research on reinforcement learning, we started noticing a lot of benefits that would be had if we would build this into a fully fledged modern reinforcement learning um, environment. And uh so we started, yeah. Oh no! I was just gonna, going to ask the the obvious question, which is so. What what are some of those benefits? Yeah. So I mean, the first benefit that I um, personally see it's it's open source. So this gave us a lot of flexibility to modify the needs for a modern re um, reinforcement learning environment. So it's it's primarily built for research, and that gives us a whole bunch of benefits. And the, the first benefit, and I mean, that is also inherent um, to the game of football, um, is that it is a non-trivial problem, right? Um, it's uh, it's actually, if you look at it, it's, it's quite hard to play. You And, and let me maybe, um, iterate on or kind of explain what, what, what you're actually doing here. So this is in the context of reinforcement learning, where you have to teach an agent to interact with the environment. Here, the agent has to control, and this is in the basic form of this environment, has to control the active player on one of the teams, and it has to do actions um, such as, okay, I'm going to walk to the right, to the left, to the top, or the bottom, and it has to pass around, shoot, as you would as a human if you were controlling um, a team in a, in a football video game. And now one of the, the benefits is that this is actually kind of, if you think of um, the game of football, where you start in the middle of the game with a kickoff, you have to pass around, you have to um, play around your opponent's defense, you have to come up with a strategy, and you have to score. That is actually a, 
a, a, a non-trivial task and it's a, it's a challenging task. In particular, if you have different difficulties of opposing teams. As already one of the advantages we saw, as you change the difficulty of the or, or the strength of the opposing team, you can strength um, you can change the the the, the the difficulty of the of the learning task. Um, similarly, you can make it much easier. You can say, well, let's say that pitch is empty and I just have to score a goal um, against no goalkeeper. That is even much easier, right? So one of the benefits that we saw was that it's very easy to adjust the difficulty of the game while still not being trivial, right? Mm -hmm. And that is kind of in contrast to maybe other environments that may be um, rather easy to solve or just very hard, um, um, computation expensive to run stuff on. At the same time, um, as it's open source, we were able to build a lot of features into the game that um, help with doing reinforcement learning research. So one thing we could do is we um, can turn on and turn off stochasticity. We can make the game deterministic. And it turns out, or and, and this is kind of still an open question research, is whether some algorithms um, generalize from a setting, from an environment that is deterministic to stochastic one, right? The game is focused on controlling the player that has the ball, the players that don't have the ball, as well as the opposing team. Is there some kind of traditional, quote-unquote, game AI that's controlling those? Yes. So maybe the one thing to keep in mind here, so the way we structured this is we build what we call the football engine, which is a, a, a simulation of a game of football. And it supports a lot of different features. One is it supports a built-in rules-based AI, as you would probably find it in a, in a professional video game. And at the same time, it supports um, a lot of features for research. And we, we chose that. Um, okay, So if you have to control all the players in your team, your task becomes much harder. We did some additional experiments, and it turns out if you have to control um, more players, this becomes harder. So in the basic version on what we call football benchmarks, which is in, the, in this setting, we consider the opposing players and your teammates to be part of the environment and they play with the built-in rules-based AI. Um, in that case, you don't control them, right? And these are basically traditional um, reinforcement learning um, problems. And we chose uh, three of them as benchmark problems where people can compare different algorithms. But at the same time, the football engine that we built supports actually controlling all of the players, um, or you can control all the players of one side, or we can even do a mix. I think in the paper we with this experiment where we control between one and three players. Um, so that's completely flexible. And that's, again, one of the benefits of having a modern reinforcement learning environment that is open source. Uh, you mentioned that you chose three scenarios for your benchmarking, how are those three scenarios distinguished? Yes, so what we decided is, so uh, we, we, we built these football benchmarks, which we consider the current benchmarks problems in this environment. And it's essentially you play a game of 11 versus 11 football against three different of these rule-based opponents. And the only thing that changes is the difficulty of how well these different opponents, uh, how well the opponent plays. Okay, and so the, some yeah. uh, some parameter to the rule-based AI that's driving them. Yes, yeah, exactly. And kind of uh, how quickly it reacts to you, um, yeah, how well it plays. As you would if you play a, you know, a football game yourself, you, you can choose you know, between an easy, a medium, and a hard. 
Um, here it's essentially the same thing. But the, the key motivation for actually doing this is also to accommodate that different researchers may have different computational budgets. So it turns out if we are running currently with the algorithms that we tried and um, um, we, we found that if you run on medium and hard problems, it becomes quickly very challenging and you might have to go to uh, distributed um, implementations of different algorithms. You need quite a lot of computational resources. But at the same time, you also want to provide um, benchmark problems where you could go with a single machine, maybe a single GPU, and you could um, actually um, test your ideas and compare against other algorithms, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, and I guess, uh, yeah, there's different areas, right, of reinforcement learning, such as um, learning with a few samples. Um, um, I think this is one of the uh, very hard problem in reinforcement learning, but it's also very relevant. And if you, even if you don't have a um, lot of computational resources, you can still go and benefit from this environment. Okay. Yeah, I mean, one thing also, we uh, also added what we call the football academy. And this is essentially... Um, as I said before, like the, having that flexible game engine allows us to really kind of change what is happening on the pitch. And one inspiration we took when, when football teams train, right, they might do some drills and we can actually model this, right? We can say, well, let's not have 11 versus 11 players. Um, maybe let's play three versus two uh, counterattack. And we defined a set of different um, such academy scenarios, as we call them, they start with very easy ones where you're close to the goal. There is no goalkeeper and you just have to score. So you have to eventually um, learn how to walk into the goal or how to kick the ball into the goal to um, more difficult problems where you play with 11 players versus a goalkeeper or, um, as I said before, counterattack scenarios um, that kind of accommodate very different game situations, but also which come with very different difficulty levels. And maybe the the key thing here is the easy ones, right? Where you just have to scores. Um, on these, you can, like, if you're in a single machine, you can get results with current algorithms within um, minutes, uh, or let's say 10, 20 minutes, instead of having to wait a full day and, and block a full machine before you can kind of um, tweak your algorithm or check your implementation. Um, so I think that's also, like, one of the key advantages of the environment. You can go and start with very simple cases and kind of see uh, where does it break without always having to wait a very long time uh, in between. You can also define your own scenarios. Um, so there is a lot of flexibility and I'm pretty excited about it. Yeah. Uh, I suspect this is going to be well beyond the scope of what you have looked about, looked at so far, certainly at this paper, but have you explored kind of the idea of transfer learning or curriculum learning, like training an agent on these academy scenarios and how that might impact performance on the game as a whole? Yes. So in the last few months, we've been very busy pushing out or kind of um, pushing out this environment and, you know, fixing bugs and running the experiments we had in this paper. It has certainly been on our mind. And one of the motivations actually for the football academy was to enable um, curriculum learning. Um, we didn't include um, results here. We kind of, we, in the paper, we include benchmark results um, for the different academy scenarios to kind of show how hard they are and kind of this role, as I mentioned before, where um, you have a different a variety of 
tasks which are which are which are of different difficulties but you can use this to go and build your own curriculum right and you can see does this fare better at actually playing the 11 versus 11 game than if i um, just start to play the 11 versus 11 game so you've talked about some of the benefits of your environment uh in terms of it being open source and some of the features that you built in uh but i'm curious taking a step back are there you know any thoughts in terms of you know some unique properties of football slash soccer as a task for reinforcement learning agents. There are a ton of RL simulation types of environments, everything from kind of the tower challenges kind of things to very, you know, domain specific uh, to, to the more general, you know, teach some agent to walk kind of environment plus Atari games, right? You know, why is football potentially, you know, interesting uh, or more interesting than some of these many other tasks? Yes, so I, I think the the key benefit um, of football is twofold. Now, the first one is I think the task as we have it now is challenging even for modern reinforcement learning algorithms. Now, if you look at, for example, the hard scenario, even playing against a fixed rules-based AI with a general learning algorithm, you, we, we, we need to run a lot of uh, several hundred millions um, of steps in a, in, a, in a distributed setting where we have several hundred machines actually running this game, right? So I think having a challenging task uh, is very important. Now, when you do research here, every research is kind of free how to choose the approach. But one of the hopes is that um, that if you, if you take a, a general kind of learning algorithm, which is not specific to football, that it would also transfer um, to other um, settings, right? Now, in terms of how does it compare to different environments, I think the, the key part what I mentioned um, before is that we can adjust the difficulty. This allows you to do research on a variety of different um, difficulty levels. I think that's different um, to prior environments, um, such as Atari, which I guess now people would consider rather on the easy side. On the other hand, there has been reinforcement learning research on other video games, um, such as StarCraft II or, or Dota, um, Dota 2. And which is rather on the computationally expensive side. Here you get kind of um, everything, right? At the same time, it's also open source, so you don't need access to a uh, clo potentially a closed source binary. Um, the other part, and I think that's also one thing we are very excited about, there is essentially two extensions that we put into uh, the environment, which is it allows to play multiplayer in a sense that um, football is inherently a multiplayer game uh, where you play against an opponent, which brings a completely new dynamic when you have somebody else acting in the same environment but with adversarial goals to you. Similarly, the environment supports actual research into multi-agents where you could think of every single player has to make their own decision on what he's going to do. And now you have two teams, right? And they have to start cooperating. You know, players within a team have to play, uh, start cooperating with each other to play against somebody else. And I think this is just a um, very broad uh, range of topics that you can investigate. Similarly, we built into the engine that you can go and train on different um, representations or different types of observations. So you can either go and train about 
pixels, which may be computationally expensive, or we can go at other um, representations of the observations, such as the actual positions of the players, right? Not every, uh, not all the data is is, is, is images. Um, and you can, uh, again, um, do something which you cannot do in other environments. Mm -hmm. uh, so the representations uh, can be, uh, in addition to just looking at the images, you can get the kind of more inherent state. What about on the control side? What what are the options uh, that you have on control of the player with the ball? Yeah, so on, there has been other reinforcement learning environments uh, which are more, which are also doing soccer, uh, football. Um, this is uh, DeepMind Soccer and RoboCup, the 3D simulation. Now, these are more on the side of doing continuous control, where it's really about low-level um, control of the um, either the robot in RoboCup or the simulated robot in RoboCup that you control, um, or a um, essentially a, a, a kind of players in in this in this DM soccer where you really okay you have to specify how much do you turn, how much do I go forward and back, which is much more uh, focused on low level control. Here the idea is more you want to learn how to do these more high level control, right? Like things like strategy, tactics um, um, become much more important. Here you control okay as you would with a gamepad. Essentially you can move right, left, top, bottom. You can sprint. You can pass. You can um, try to press when you're in defense, um, and, and, and so on. But again, the environment is open source, so um, this can be modified, right? Uh, so it sounds like the way that you control the character is one of the key distinction between this environment and some of the others that are out there for this game. Are there other distinctions? Yeah, I think it's that, that is one of them. Uh, it's in particular to... Uh, with regards to the other environments that do football, that is for me the the key difference. I think to the other ones, yeah, the actual tasks that you're doing, and um, the fact that you can go for, from different types of observations, that you can adjust the difficulty, um, that it's open source. Um, these are all differences. I think one of the points here is also I think there's also in reinforcement learning always a certain investment required in in going and using an environment. And what I like here is in one environment, you can essentially do a lot of different types of research. Maybe share a little bit about uh, where your group goes from here. This has been published uh, out on GitHub. When did it uh, go live? When was the environment published and the paper published? Yeah, so we um, put this um, kind of right, uh, we, we finished a sprint um, just before ICML where we uh, first pushed this to GitHub uh, with an accompanying paper which describes the environment. Since then, uh, we had a demonstration at ICML at the Google booth where we showed this to people. We got a lot of feedback. We've changed or we've worked on the environment actively. Since then, we, we added a lot of cool features that I'm excited about. This multiplayer feature where you can do self-play, for example. We've added uh, multi-agent um, support. Uh, we've done um, optimizations to the game engine. It runs now 3x faster. And we've just recently updated uh, the paper and put it on archive with more experiments where we investigate kind of the first experiments into three different um, research directions, which we think are very promising in this environment. One of them is uh, what, what happens if you do self-play? What happens? Second is what happens if you do this multi-agent setting where you control more players? 
And the third one is what happens if you use different representations of the actual um, environment or the observations that the agent interacts with. And so uh, from from this point, does your group continue to work on kind of the environment itself or do you start to uh, branch off into doing more experimentation work in the environment? Where do you, you see your work going with this? Yes. So we are definitely, I, I think there there is, as you said, two things that we want to do. The first thing is we want to make sure this is a useful research um, or enforcement learning environment. Um, so we are gonna, definitely going to continue um, adding features, make it easier to use the, the, the environment. I think the potential that it has, especially with the multiplayer um, component or where you have to compete against other agents, um, we are definitely looking into options how to make this more accessible. At the same time, we are also super excited to do um, research on this environment, yes. And also, I think one thing that we should highlight here, um, this has been a, a big team effort in the team here. So it has been over 10 people that have uh, worked actively on this project, right? And um, now I think it's also maybe a time where um, different people are going to explore different things in this environment. Uh, and so, Olivia, maybe what are three things that you personally learned in working on this project? Yeah, so for me, this has been quite a cool experience. I um, didn't really do reinforcement learning research before I came to this project. So for me, I learned a ton about all the different environments that are out there, about different algorithms. And I also learned, and this is kind of a funny anecdote, that even now these algorithms that we have, they're very good at exploiting kind of loopholes in the game engine. And like one example um, that uh, people in, in our team found and they thought this was pretty funny is if you have 11 players um, playing football and trying to score against a single goalkeeper, what is kind of the, the best strategy to do? And it turns out in the the version that we, the, the game that we had at that time, um, what the agent learned is it would go um, take the ball, kick it outside of the playing field so that the goalkeeper has to go and do a throw in where he doesn't have any teammates. So he's going to throw it somewhere where the other players have it and now the players will score. And I think that <laughs> really uh, I think it was a pretty cool um, example that we found. How but long did it take had, the agent to figure that out? I don't remember the details, <laughs> but it's kind of like once it found this, it's a super smart strategy, right? And it's right, really right. exploiting kind of a loophole. We had a similar one where essentially when you train these agents in the beginning, um, the opposing team scores a lot and you're kind of learning not to admit um, any goals, right? And one thing I learned is, for example, that um, once the opposing player, for example, kicks the ball besides the goal, your goalkeeper, when he's doing the kickoff, he can just wait indefinitely because the engine didn't include any mechanism to prohibit that. And that is a good way to minimize, you know, the opponent's scoring goals if the game doesn't continue. And I think these <laughs> things are super funny. And I think it also highlights one of the things which we didn't really talk about yet, but which is that like doing research in this uh, football environment also makes that research to some degree more accessible, right? A lot of people, they care about football. They, they like watching football. It's very intuitive. And um, uh, that's why I also, I, we, we hope that 
actually having a football environment also helps with actually people, you know, maybe demystifying a bit what is happening um, in this research so that people can see, oh, you know, this is a, a random agent. It's doing this, right? And then suddenly it starts learning um, how not to admit goals. And then you see how it learns um, to score. I think people can very much identify with it. Students that are doing master programs that want to learn about um, reinforcement learning. It, it, it's super cool. You can go uh, with the environment, you know, learn how to um, pass or kind of score against an empty goal, then two versus one and so on. So I think that's maybe one of the benefits that we didn't really talk about, which is that it is a very accessible environment, right? You don't like like a lot of people know about football. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, you just uh, recently published this, but are you aware of any efforts or plans to incorporate this into kind of learning uh, curricula? So uh, deep learning and reinforcement learning is a very fast moving field. So we chose the approach of releasing the environment and um, publish, uh, putting online the um, paper. So this has not been published yet. It's, it's, on the, it's on the web. Everybody can use it, but we are, we're definitely trying to publish this, but um, it has not been published yet. Got it. And the, for, as to the second question, um, for curriculum learning, uh, we did some very um, initial and, and experiments. Just to, to be clear, I, I'm more talking about, uh, do you see application? Well, you spoke to seeing applications of this environment in the education of humans and uh, growing their own knowledge of reinforcement learning. And I was just curious if you were aware of any plans to formalize that and maybe build it into, you know, some uh, online course or some school-based course to teach students about reinforcement learning using this metaphor that they're very familiar with. Um, so I'm not aware of this, but I definitely hope that this happens. We've seen quite a lot of positive feedbacks on things like um, Twitter, uh, where people got very excited about that. So I, I definitely hope that helps people access uh, research. Um, again, also, given that it's open source, uh, it's very easy um, to use or to get started. We, like, If people are interested in even if your listeners are interested in, we go to our GitHub page, um, github.com google slash uh, dash research slash football um, it's very easy to get started you can install the environment there is examples which show you how to train a basic agent um, so i'm all for making it as accessible as possible and you talked about the agents that you've played with finding these kind of corner cases to exploit the environment yeah you know, how do you address that it, it strikes me that you know in, in some cases the solution to that is maybe putting in more constraints that are like the, you know, the human game of football or, or better modeling that environment. In other cases, you might need to do something that doesn't make sense in the context of the, the actual sport. And it's kind of creates this own, you know, this, you know, unique computer football sport. Uh, does that does that comment resonate at all? And and how have you addressed those kinds of corner case issues? Yeah, so we ran a lot of experiments, and as you said, it is actually pretty hard to build a good reinforcement learning environment. Now, I think now we are pretty confident that it works pretty well, um, but that doesn't um, exclude that you know you go um, come with a new learning algorithm. It's really good. It finds another corner case. I think we then have to kind of address this um, on a case-by-case -case basis. I think it also boils kind of back to the underlying motivation, right? 
um, I think the motivation is not necessarily, you know, playing this um, environment, like playing as well as possible in this environment as a primary goal, but the goal is to do research, right? And if there are things that hinder research in this environment, um, then uh, I guess we have to change it. On the other hand, I think there's also, and I think this is uh, the, the general feeling in our team, there's a there is a benefit to having stability on the environment side so that research and um, um, results uh, stay comparable uh, across different papers. So we definitely don't want to change the environment too often. But if there is very obvious failure cases, right, which you can never exclude, then this we might have to do this, right? It sounds like then that for the most part, the these exploitable corner cases, you've kind of considered them as bugs as opposed to you know, inherent qualities of the game that you're trying to model. Does that make sense? Yes. I, I, yeah, I think so. I think, you know, the, the, the example of the, of the uh, goalkeeper having to go doing the throw in that really defeats the purpose of these scenarios we've defined. Right. Yeah. Similarly, the, the example that I gave where the goalie doesn't kick it away. Right. Like if you do this in a real, in a real game, um, you, you would get a, a delay of um, game penalty. Right. Mm-hmm. Or you'd be, um, at least something would happen. I think that really shows. Okay, um, maybe this was a, a, a this was really a bug in the implementation, right? I think on the other hand, also boils back to right. Whenever you are building an environment like this, right, you have to take some choices. We've done this with a kind of best faith effort, and we think uh, now it is kind of ready to be used for for research. Uh, well, Olivier, thanks so much for taking the time to share this project with us. Yeah, thanks for having me here. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.